Lifeway Audio. And I just remember people coming over and bringing us food, but not, not feeling hunger and not wanting to eat anything. And I remember the next day, um, Levi's, some of Levi's family came into town and we all went ice skating. And Daisy was two at the time and she hadn't said a word, like the whole time she hadn't said a word. And I remember we walked up to the ice skating rink and there was a little girl who from behind looked like Lenya. And it was the first time Daisy had said anything. And she was like, Lenya! And she like wanted to get down and run to her, but it wasn't her. And there was just so much heartache and shock and wonder and pain and grief and it was the start of just those waves of grief that would happen but then it was the next day that was fresh life christmas it was christmas eve and levi was supposed to preach and i mean even when he invited the people at the er that night he was like I want to invite you to Fresh Life Christmas. I'm supposed to preach. I don't know if I can, but if you come, I'll preach. And I think that was even like a decision in his heart. I feel like then where he was like, I'm going to do this in Lenya's honor. When the service came about, it was never really a question for me. I feel like it was I was meant to preach that sermon. I had written it that day um, and I finished it after she went to heaven because I realized there was that missing ingredient of death. I had had loneliness, despair, grief, and fear in there, but not death. And so that's what I preached. And I actually preached the last point of the, of the sermon off of my Christmas card. We t I took it up to the pulpit and read that verse, and it gave me straight the whole sermon to see her face on it. He offers power over the grave. He offers to shine his light on what is all at once the most terrifying prospect, the most fear-filled, fear-soaked, confusion-abounding place and space of our life, and that is when we take our last breath and what happens next, and Jesus promises to be there to hold you and to receive you into heaven. Like he told the thief on the cross, you will be with me today in paradise. And I believe that for every person who has trusted Christ as Savior, there is the promise of eternal life and resurrection and hope in the next world. Levi didn't have to preach that night. He didn't have to preach at Fresh Life Christmas. We could have easily said, hey, this was a hard thing that happened. We're not gonna do this. But he, what we like to call, like he ran toward the roar and he did something so hard, but it was so beautiful to see God's strength, literally see God's strength in him and to preach the gospel and to testify of God's goodness in the very midst of the pain. It just, even now, it just gives me strength and inspires me to just keep showing up and to keep, keep running toward the roar. I'll never forget the first time some friends took me out surfing. I was in Bible college in California and we went down to the beach and they kind of told me how to paddle out and point my nose towards the shore, paddle like crazy, and then they kind of abandoned me. So now I'm kind of on my own, I'm trying to surf, I'm trying to do this thing, and ended up in the whitewash, the impact zone, the place that you don't want to be. 
where the waves are closing out and they were dumping right down on top of me. And I was kind of like, couldn't, you know, catch the waves to go in, but also wasn't quite out yet. So I was just in the one place that you just don't want to be. And then I, I ended up going over and over again, over the falls. And uh, I would just, just barely have gotten up to the top and then another wave would get me. And it was so disorienting because eventually I would be underwater so long and I couldn't almost really even tell which way was up. My board's pulling at me this way. My instincts were telling me it was this, but I was actually swimming down, not up. And it was so confusing. I uh, made it to the shore sputtering and belching out seawater and just almost swore off surfing until someone was kind enough to teach me about how to channel which is how to go around the waves uh, in between peaks and be able to get out to safety and then catch the waves from there. I remember thinking about that story when I was going in a Bible study through the book of Philippians and I had come across what Paul said to the church at Philippi about his friend Epaphroditus. It's such a powerful text and it's in fact one of the best ways in the entire Bible to see what grief can do in the life of a believer. And this is an interesting topic because when we talk about grief, we tend to think about that first Thessalonians, you know, we as Christians don't sorrow as those who have no hope. And that's certainly true. But what I want you to see as we go to Philippians 2 in a moment is that just because we have hope and we don't need to sorrow like those who don't have hope, that doesn't mean that we as Christians, when we grieve, we won't be sad. All right, now here's Philippians 2. Verse 27, and I'll give you the context in just a moment. But Paul says, speaking about his friend Epaphroditus, he indeed was sick, almost unto death, but God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. Now, if you can, underline or highlight that in your Bible. If you're on the YouVersion app, you can actually just highlight it right there on the screen. Those three words, sorrow upon sorrow. It's a very intense phrase in the original language. It's actually borrowed from the nautical world. And what it refers to is wave after wave after wave pounding, crashing upon the shore. Imagine the jagged rocks on the coast of the eastern seaboard and there's a lighthouse, you know, shining out a beacon into the sea for ships and, and this major storm comes in and, and all of a sudden you just see these rogue waves slamming down upon those rocks. That is how Paul said it would have felt to him to have his friend die. Now context-wise, the church at Philippi, it was a church Paul started, it's beautiful. You can find it in Acts 16. Paul was arrested, ended up singing in prison. There was an earthquake. A jailer almost committed suicide, but dramatically and heroically, Paul stepped in and intervened. The guy gets saved, washes the wounds on Paul's back that he created, ends up letting Paul hang out at his house. The church got off to an amazing start in Philippi. It was the first ministry ever done in Europe, which was funny because Paul got there wanting to get to Asia, which is just like following the Holy Spirit. Warning, things will not go how you think they will. They'll be much better than that. Uh, because Paul ends up seeing the Church of Jesus Christ established into Europe while he's trying to get to Asia, but he has to leave town and really quickly and suddenly uh, because there were some people still chasing after him. So now he's moved on in ministry, but the church at Philippi that he started wants to support him, wants to serve him, wants to help him. So they send an offering and they pick this guy named 
Epaphroditus to bring the resource to Paul. And on the way, he contracted some sort of disease, got sick somehow, and it was serious. By the time he got to Paul, this guy was hanging on by a thread and almost died. And Paul loved Epaphroditus so much that he writes back to the church of Philippi, if he would have died, I would have experienced sorrow upon sorrow. Now, you might hear that and go, man, that's crazy. Didn't Paul know that heaven is for real? Didn't he read the best-selling book and ex experience the, the power of the movie starring Greg Kinnear, right? Like heaven, no, it'd be fine. Like you almost would want to sit down, Paul, and chastise him for a moment and go, Paul, if Epaphroditus died, he would have gone to a better place. Why would you need to be so sad? Turn that frown upside down. He'd probably be water skiing on the Crystal Lake and moonwalking on those golden streets past the pearly gates. Why would you need to be so sad if you're a Christian, if you have hope? And the, such a thinking would betray in us the, the thinking of a, of a picture of what having hope looks like that is unrealistic. You see, it's far more human than that. God doesn't expect you or me to be robots in our faith. The moment we get saved, it's not as though our emotions are completely unplugged. You see, Paul knew that heaven is for real, for the record. Paul, Paul knew better than anybody. You're like, well, what, what would make him such an authority? Uh, he got to go there one time, no big deal. Many people think that this is what he was referring to in 2 Corinthians 12, when he said, I know somebody who got to go to heaven one time. Not gonna mention any names, it was me. It was like sort of like the original humble brag. So he got to experience and see heaven. So he knew better than anybody that if Epaphroditus would have died, he would have been in a great place. That's why Paul later on said, heaven is far better. In fact, having seen it, I'd rather go there now than be here on this earth where there's car accidents and cancer and grief and political infighting and difficulty and pandemics and all the rest. So he knew heaven was for real, but that didn't mean he wouldn't be sad if his friend died. Here's the point, and I think it's so important that we let this sink deep down in. Hurting with hope still hurts. No, the sting of death is not something we need to any longer deal with, but that doesn't mean it doesn't sting to deal with. I know for a fact, because of Jesus' words, that my daughter is in heaven, but that doesn't mean it didn't hurt like hell to have her ripped from my arms. And I think the devil is the one who would want you to think that in order to please God, you need to have almost this like bulletproof faith that almost doesn't care and doesn't feel and, and is, is okay. He, he wants you to have this unrealistic stained glass portrait of what it means to follow Jesus and go through hard things. Because if you try to attain to that ideal, you will never measure up. And then you will inevitably end up throwing in the towel because you're unable to carry that standard of perfection that God has never called you to. And if you don't believe me, then look at what Jesus himself modeled as the way to be human when he himself dealt with his own Epaphroditus situation. Oh, it's John chapter 11 one of Jesus' best friends, someone he was close enough to that he would crash at his house when he was in town. He'd be cruising through Bethany. He'd be like, yo, Lazarus, get the fold-out couch out, right? Now nah, make Peter sleep on the fold-out. Jesus got the guest bedroom, you can be sure. Actually, let's give Judas the fold-out, the one with the spring stick. I'm just joking. So, so Lazarus was his homeboy, right? In fact, uh, when, when, when Lazarus got sick, they sent word to Jesus and said, 
tell Jesus the one that he loves is sick, thinking surely Jesus will spring to action to take care of someone he was so close to in life. And yet Lazarus did die. And Jesus, who knew that Lazarus was A, in paradise as that, as that took place, and B, knew that he, in just a few moments in John chapter 11, was going to raise Lazarus from the dead, he yet still approached the grave weeping. Shortest verse in the Bible. John 11:35, two words, Jesus wept. Shortest verse in the Bible, and yet one of the most powerful when you really consider what was happening. Jesus, who knew in just a few minutes was, he was going to say, Lazarus, come forth, and Lazarus would come back out and be eating at a party where Mary would pour fragrant oil at Jesus' feet in just a couple days. And yet he, he still experienced the, the full freight of human emotion, sorrow upon sorrow. He was angry as well, snorting, groaning, the Bible says. He groaned in his spirit. The Greek speaks of the angry noises an agitated horse would make. Why was Jesus so angry? He was angry at death, angry at sin, angry at the grave, because he never wanted us to experience any of those things. So there's room is all I'm trying to get you to understand in your suffering, in your grief, in all you're going through to glorify God and yet still be confused, to be to be in a place where you're at a loss for words, feeling like the waves of your grief, the waves of your suffering are churning you in and out of the different stages, bargaining and denial and anger and acceptance and isolate. All those things as you come in and out of the muddled cocktail that is suffering as a fallen human being, redeemed, loved, saved, sealed, set with your sight set on heaven and yet still at times uh, spinning your wheels in what feels like mud. You can honor God even in the midst of your sorrow upon sorrow. So don't feel like I must not really be spiritual. I must not really love God because I'm still full of questions. I, I still hurt. I'm still groaning in my spirit. I still am weeping. The reality is God is honored by the worship that you give him when you understand him the least. C.S. Lewis said he's most glorified by the prayers that we offer to him in times where we feel like we are spiritually dry. God is pleased by your questions. He's pleased by your, your, your feeling betrayed even by him at times, so long as you can continue to say, I don't understand what you're doing, but I trust you anyway. For our God, I'm going to end with this, never called us to understand him. He called us to worship him. Lifeway Audio.